0: Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior following was recorded on Sunday, September 25, 2022. Today's message title, What a Great God Can Do with Ordinary and Willing People, a study in the Book of Nehemiah. Okay, so we've talked about the
1: preparation of Nehemiah, the response of Nehemiah to God-given opportunities, and now he's called the people to action, and we go into a chapter that if we're honest, many of you may have skipped or read through really, really fast. Uh, It's a lot of ancient Jewish names that I'm about to read a whole chapter of and totally butcher their announce, uh, uh, how to pronounce their names. A sort of list that many of us maybe wonder at times, why is this list in the Bible of people living 2,500 years ago and how do I get anything from this? Um, And so we're gonna go through, we're we're gonna stand up for this reading most definitely. And we're going to read the entire chapter of three as we go through these different names. I've highlighted some details that I want you to notice as we read through this, because I do think there's some details in here that can challenge us, perhaps correct us and rebuke us if need be, and encourage us as we see uh, what, a, what a great God can do with ordinary people. And you know we have two types of people in the world, right? There's so many two types of people. You have some people who have a very, very high view of themselves, and they say, "Oh, this is not a sermon for me," or "If this is about how God uses ordinary people." And then we have other people who are, who think of themselves very, very lowly. And how, why would God want me? Why would I be a part of this? Uh, and so we, I just want to read this text. We see we see both people who have. Statue, a, st- a status in society, highly viewed and esteemed. And then we have regular people whose jobs are not even mentioned, so titles are not even mentioned. And so let us stand up and read Nehemiah chapter three and show me grace as I struggle through some of these, some of these Middle Eastern names here in the text. All right, and I've, I've underlined and, and highlighted some of the details that I want you to keep note of as we work our way through the text. It says here, then Eliash, <laughs> a rough start. Eliashib, uh, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Sakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanah built the fist gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, from uh, uh, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Mashulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Mesha, (laughs) Mesha Shabel, repaired. And next to them, Sadog, the son of Ba'amah, repaired. And next, uh, Tikoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord joadiah the son of Pesiah the and meshulam the son of Besodiah repaired the gates of Yeshana. they laid its beams and set its doors its bolts and its bars and next to them repaired Melathiah the gibeonite and Jadon the Meronathite, the men of gibeon and misbah and set in the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river Next to them, Uziel, the son of Haraiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired, opposite his house. And next to him, Hattus, the son of Heshab. (laughs) nayah <laughs> repaired. Uh Malchiah, the son of Harim and Hashub, the son of Pathath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shelem, the son of Helohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Sanoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkiah the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He uh, rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol-Hoseh, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and he built the wall of the pool of Shela, the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. And after him, Nehemiah, the son of Asgolk, ruler of half the district of Batsur repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. And after him, the Levites repair, Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Tela, repaired for his district. And after him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad ruler of half the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mispa, repaired another section opposite the ancient, uh, uh, repaired man. I just lost my place. 19. Thank you. (laughs) Opposite the tent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Sebai, Sebai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house to Elishib, to the end of the house of Elishib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. And after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Masaya, the son of Ananiah, repaired besides his own house. And after him, Buni, Bun, Binui, the son of Henedad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the cord of the, yard, uh, of the guard. And after him, Periah, the son of Peros, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to the point opposite the water gate and on the east and the projecting tower. And after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. And above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Sadok, the son of Imer, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemiah, Shem- the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And after him, Hananiah, the son of uh, the and Hanun, the sixth son of Selav, repaired another section. And after him, Meshullam, the son of Berachiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malchiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired. And as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber to the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. All right. Okay. That was a long reading, a lot of names. And so uh, if you're here and you're like, man, what what did I just walk into? Uh, So one of the things that we do as a church is we try to walk through the Bible we want the sermons to reflect the Bible. If you, if you've been to churches, uh, some, some of you may notice some churches, uh, by the way, you could be seated. Uh, some of you can may notice some churches just have sort of hobby horse subjects that they always want to talk about over and over again. And so to protect you from me always just going by the whims of what I want to talk about this week. We want to ground ourselves in scriptures and to, to protect me from you guys. If you're like, man, you are always talking about lineage or whatever, uh, then you have to be like, well, that, that's the next verse. And, and so it's, we want to be grounded in scripture and we want to be open and honest and dealing with all the, the various subjects that the scripture brings up. If I'm honest with you, if I was always doing topical sermons, I would have not thought, you know what? I want to talk about the list of people in Nehemiah chapter three. Uh, but this week as I was dwelling on it, I'm like, okay, what, it, what is in here, God? Like, what do, you, what do you have for us? How can we be built up by a list of people repairing a wall in Nehemiah that I barely know how to pronounce their names? Now, if you don't know, so Nehemiah prayed for four months. He, he had a moment with a king to get permission to go to Jerusalem to restore the walls of the city that's been broken down at this point. A lot of the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon, and uh, then he he goes. And when he goes, he spends four months at least on the road on his way to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, they rebuild the wall in less than two months. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not an architect. I'm not a structural engineer. I'm not a, a, a master mason or anything like that. Um, but just judging by the amount of time I take putting together IKEA furniture, I'm just like, man, that's got to be miraculous. Two months for a whole wall around a city, that has to be miraculous. I didn't do research if it was, but I'm like, and, and when you look at the list of people, and God did it through sort of ordinary people. Like the people we were reading there, most of them didn't have a job description. They didn't have a title. They were just ordinary people saying, man, God, would you use me to rebuild the city, to answer the call, to go? And there's no experts there. There, there is no nothing there. And, and I was thinking for me, man, I'm reading this to of people. It's like, where is the structural engineer? Is this safe? You know, Thinking from an Icelandic perspective, are there earthquakes in the area? What do we need to do about that? Uh, but no, like so often for me, and I think for us, what we do is we wait for everything to line up perfectly for us to have all the visible experts and materials and everything that we need. If God is calling us to do something, it's like just line up all these items. And yet here we have people who didn't rely on anything really being figured out perfectly, but just heard the call of God through Nehemiah They saw what he had done through Nehemiah already and said, we are willing and ready to go if you call us to this job, even if we don't have the experts that we think we do need. We have the expert of everything. We have the creator and sustainer of all creation on our side and how amazing that is and how correcting for me that is. How often I have hesitated to to do what I feel like God is calling me to do because I'm waiting for everything to line up perfectly. And here is just a list of a bunch of faithful people, just ordinary people, yet willing people that were willing to just respond to the call of God. So we start off today, and I just want to highlight out first a very obvious observation of this text is that this reminds us that this is happening to real people in a real place at a real time. Like there's this idea out there that Christianity is just a refurbished mythology that takes from other religions or anything like that. But no, this this is not sort of, this doesn't start like Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away, you know, that there were certain people. No, no, this is like, no, these are very specific people with names that are hard to pronounce at a time that was literally a time in history. Like, I think we forget that. We think of David as almost like an idea rather than a person who in you know experienced drought and and being tired or Jesus walking the earth. And there was just something about it when I went to Jerusalem to to know that I possibly came into a a contact with a piece of sand that one of the disciples stepped on or something like that. Like that was just like it helped me to remember this is a real place like driving to Bethlehem Seeing all the various hills and the rocks, like, man, that was a tough journey. To me, they had paved roads in my mind (laughs) before I went there. Um, And so we have to remind ourselves, this is real time, real people, real God operating in human history. And as we see all these ordinary people, we marvel because these ordinary people accomplished an extraordinary task against all odds because they serve a great God who is with them. This reminds me a bit of the church because for, for many churches, we tend to value experts, right? We, we tend to value the skilled, the qualified, the, the educated, the, the, and we view sometimes these, these people as the most valuable players on the team. You know, like as, I, as, as we started the church, literally I've been open and honest about this. I literally Googled how to start a church. Like I had no idea what I was about to do I, I, I think the, the, the I saw it happening in the New Testament. I wanted to be faithful to God. I, I, I was listening to podcasts, reading books. You know the crazy thing about reading books about starting churches and pastoring churches? Like the key things, like here's what you need. You need a good membership. You need this type of thing. You need this type of discipleship, these type of services. You know what's almost never mentioned? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> God. Like you need God to be a part of the church. You need God to be a part of building this thing up. This is actually not my church. It's no one's church. It's Jesus's church. And if God, if Jesus is back there and I'm moving ahead, doing my own thing, man, this church is a flop. It doesn't matter how many people we can gather. Man, we can, we can gather a people by starting a fight in the parking lot, right? We can gather a bunch of people, but if we gather people, that's not success. If we're not following where Jesus would lead, right? And many claim, many claim this uh, and I, I just like, I don't know, like I, I see these ordinary people, these, these names that have no titles, no prestige about them. And I'm like, I'm, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just like, thank you. Thank you, God, that you who are above everyone and everything else would invite someone like me, like us to be a part of your unfolding story here in Iceland. And I'm just like, man, that's awesome that this is an invitation open to to everybody who would come. And I don't know about you, like I've I've had this interaction with a lot of people who come to me like, Kunar, your religion is too narrow-minded. Anybody anybody, uh, got that objection? Okay, three, four, five, six, (laughs) six of us. Um, um, But I mean, that's an objection I get a lot. Your religion is too narrow-minded. And in one way, that's right. Like think about a sentence that Jesus says in John 14, six, he says, I am the way, not a way, like he's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me, right? You may be like, I'm confused about what the way means or the truth, the life, but you know that that's a big statement, right? (laughs) If, If a Christian here walks up and says, Hey guys, I am the way. I'm like, I don't know what you mean by that but you're probably not. Right? That's a big statement. And Jesus is saying, man, and a statement like that is narrow-minded, right? Can we be honest? That's, that's like, that's narrow-minded. And that's incredibly narrow-minded. But then again, all truth is kind of narrow-minded, isn't it? Um, either it is true that Jesus is the only way that we can be saved by trusting in him as our Lord and as our savior, or surrendering our lives to be used by him, or it is not true. Like Those are two narrow-minded choices about Jesus that you have, right? Walls and constructed physical things are narrow-minded too. If you decide you don't like the fact there's a wall out there, so you're just gonna believe that it doesn't exist and try to walk through it, let me tell you, the narrow-minded truth will hit you in the face, right? It will be there and it's narrow-minded. It doesn't bow to what you want the wall to be or if you want it to be there. Svava is my wife. That's narrow minded too. Water is wet. Said that before, and some of you come after and you're like, actually, I don't know if water is wet. And I'm like, see, see, this is what I'm talking about. But it is. And that's that's narrow minded. Uh, But reality and truth tends to be very narrow minded. It doesn't bow to what I want it to be. But the thing is, with Jesus, we don't like this. And so with Jesus, we say, Well, he was a great teacher, right? He's a great man, did a lot of great things, but but what if he was wrong about this? Can we really say that he was a great guy? He had some good ideas, but then, oh yeah, he also thought he was God. (laughs) Kind of a wonky character there. Like I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it up for us. So we have this choice when confronted with Jesus. Either he is a liar, either he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. We don't get away with saying, I said, he was a good guy. No, no, no. Either he was lying and therefore not a good guy, lying to a bunch of people about being God when he wasn't, or he was a lunatic who thought he really was God when he really wasn't, or he is Lord. Like, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, Jesus can either be of all importance or of no importance. What we cannot do, and what actually is really popular today, is to say that Jesus is moderately important. We cannot do that. Either he is a liar or a lunatic of no importance or he is Lord. And then we come, so we're like we are confronted with the narrow-minded truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. If you want to come to the Father, you have to come to me. And yet what we see in scriptures also is Jesus is very inclusive. So in Matthew chapters 11, verses 28 to 30, when we think about, okay, He says, he is the way, who is the way open to? He says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so what we have in the scriptures is Jesus being narrow-minded because he stands on truth but also saying this truth is open for everybody. If you want it, the qualifications you need is not greatness. It's not perfect story or background. It's not your behavior in the future. No, the qualification is, are you tired? Are you tired of doing this by yourself? Are you willing to come to me and realize I am where peace is? He is the only way to heaven. And yet, this, 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 this way is open for all. There's exclusivity because of truth and yet it's open for all. And we find that here in, in our text today, in Nehemiah, we see the open invitation of God for ordinary people to say, man, I wanna be a part of what God is doing in Jerusalem. And we see in the text, people whose status and professions are not named. And then yet again, we have, Priests and Levite who Levites who served in the temple of God, right? They're they're used to a very different job profession and then laying down bricks and they're joining in the work. We see goldsmiths and we see uh merchants. And I love the fact that we see perfumers in there. You know, it's just like perfumer and mason just seem like very opposite job descriptions to me. But you have all these things happening and we see city rulers come in, we see others who are ordinary people sweating alongside of the city rulers, the perfumers, the goldsmiths, all these people, and they are laboring, accompanied with their sons and daughters and they are simply laying down brick. People of various professions, various economic standards willing to stand as equals because they realize that ultimately there's only one that is greater then all of them, when they compare themselves, not to their education or their background, but rather in light of who God is, we realize that there's no reason to boast. And if we do think that there is some reason to boast other than the grace of God, we are, we have to stand corrected and realize, man, and in the light of, of the glory of God, the Old Testament says, our our righteousness is like filthy rags. Like the best thing I have to offer it's like filthy rags because it's tainted by me. You know, like what are, you know, and you might be like, wow, that's kind of not nice. No, but what if I offered you a glass of water and I told you one of the glasses is from the sink and the other one, I just cleaned it, but it's from the toilet, right? Which one would you prefer? it's tainted by the toilet, right? Even though you said you cleaned it and everything else, that's that's the idea that we present our righteousness before God and before holy God who is perfect. We've all failed, right? And yet he invites us to come into his unfolding story and be a part of what he's doing. And there are two dangers that we fall into when when confronted with, man, do we want to be a part of what God is doing or not? Uh, We've dwelt a little bit about what God can do with ordinary and willing people, but there are at least two dangers that keep us from participating in God's mission. And that is this, number one is thinking yourself to be too insignificant or ill-equipped. I hope I've highlighted enough. This is not about you. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about how awesome you are. We are here singing about Jesus. Like we are here praising God for what he's done. Did you notice that? None of the songs were about Lizzie right? Even as awesome as he is, right? None of, none of the songs were about anybody in here. It was all about Jesus. So there's one danger thinking, man, God could never use someone like me. You don't know the past that I've been dealt with. You don't know the mistakes that I've done. You don't know what I've said or done. Two thirds of the New Testament is written by a guy who made it his goal to kill Christians before he became a Christian. <laughs> and that's God can use anybody, right? And then the second point is this, what keeps you away from participating in God's mission is thinking yourself too important or above it all. And we see this heart-wrenching words in verse five, and next to them, the Ticoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now I'm sure that these nobles thought, man, this work is beneath me. Other people can lay bricks. I need to turn my focus and attention to more important matters. And plus, I have nice clothes. I don't want to get dirty, right? That's probably what they were thinking. Their time was better spent focusing on things of more value. But in reality, we're here 2,500 years later, and we're not talking about their important work. We never hear about it. We're talking about these ordinary people that were simply willing to say, God told us to build, we're building. And that's awesome. And so that can be deceiving. Seeking respect and honor from people can be a dangerous road to travel down. And unfortunately, there are people who think that because they have great titles, because uh, they have great honor among people, that means that they are great and godly leaders. But a godly leader does not simply tell, he shows, right? And these nobles, with their response to the call of God, were showing the people that they cared more about their comfort, perhaps their dignity rather than to show the people what it looked like to follow God, They deemed their own opinions, their own methods to be more important than God and his call and biblical wisdom. Respect is not gained by titles, nor is godly leadership gained by titles, but faithfulness to the call of God. So I I wanna propose this question. Do you hunger after God's spirit? to do his will in your life and through your life? Do you want your life to revolve around being filled with God, experiencing his peace that surpasses understanding? In which case, I ask, are we going where God is leading? Or are we maybe reading too fast through verse five, not realizing we are very much like the nobles sometimes, not willing to stoop, serve their Lord. Even the language is just like heartbreaking. And faith, let's remind us of this. James tells us faith without works is, is what? Is half a life it's wounded, wounded faith. No, no, it's dead. That is kind of final. Like that's, that's not use. There's not much use you can have with dead faith. And James says, man, if you want to have faith in God, you, that's awesome. But faith without leading to change is, it's dead. It doesn't matter. James in another part of the book says, you believe that God is one. Amazing, good orthodox thinking right there. But you know who else believes that God exists? The devil, <laughs> his demons. And so what are we doing in light of it? I, I was reading a book this week and uh, A.W. Toaster printed it this way. You can be straight as a gun barrel theologically, but also empty as a gun barrel theologically. Right? If we, if we have, Intellects—if we have ideas, if we have theoretical knowledge about God, and yet we don't know God—that can so easily deceive us into thinking that we are mature Christians. Maybe, maybe you have an arsenal of big theological words that even autocorrect doesn't know what to do with. Like you just presuppose—I don't know. <laughs> post <laughs> I'm trying to think of some word. Uh, so, see, I don't have that, so I'm really godly. And I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing, if you don't do anything about it, our intellect, our knowledge of who God is, if we don't know him, it's not, it's not something that should deceive us into thinking that because we know this stuff about God, that means we're now godly people because of grace. He, he invites us to come and do more. Actually, okay, let me qualify that statement because some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> we're for, saved by grace through faith. That is true. But he, he, through his grace, through undeserved favor on our life. He has saved us from our sin. He has paid our debt. He has taken our shame and nailed it to the cross. But it also leads to, man, he's inviting you to more, to more joyful work, to more fulfilling work, to more uh, significant work. And so many of us, we can, we can be deceived thinking that, What's right in front of us right now? That's the point. That's the most important thing. But man, he's inviting us to do more. Take part in something of eternal significance, to partake in a new build. Like we see here in the text, they're, they're willing. But also what you see in the text, when you have to, when you're going to do what God calls you to do, sometimes you have to let go of your old tools and pick up some new ones. I'm sure the perfumers were using very different tools to crush some herbs or herbs, as as some of you say, uh, herbs and then so on and so forth, and then going to, to lay down bricks for a wall. Like you have to switch your mindset. You have to take up new tools and let go of some of the old ones. But are we willing to? Should not like be concerned so much about what we do for a living, but rather what we live for doing, right? In our professions, even though they are good, they should never be ultimate. What you do for a job should never be the thing that you find your worth or value in. So often we, we gobble up the lies of the world to tell us that the temporary is of most importance, but in eternal reality of things, nothing compares what we do for Jesus. Like there's a poem that I love by, a guy called C.T. Studd, and one of the verses says this, only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life to soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Man, it is so easy to simply spend your life running after the temporary thinking that that's where you're going to find joy, but that's like temporary pleasure, but you're forfeiting eternal joy in the pursuit of that thing. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people have regrets on their deathbeds, because up until that moment, they never actually stopped to think what is of most importance? What do I want to do? And so often we fail at getting what we want most because we settle for what we can have right now. And we just chase the carrot around. And so, so often we we ask this question, what do you do for a living, right? But the reality is we live in a society, we live in the West where many people don't do anything for a living. They live for the earning. They just live for this stuff. I want more. I want more positions. I want more titles. I want more success. I want more things. And I'm just going to spend my life doing that, never really stopping to think, is there something more to all this? Don't believe the lie that your profession is what defines you or is of greatest importance. Jesus invites you to work that is eternally significant. Only one life to soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And at these nobles, they, they settled for temporary pleasures and prestige rather than the offer to partake in the work of God with eternal joy and eternal point to it. Which leads to our second point. What we see in the people there is sort of this holy and healthy discontent. I've been thinking about the, a lot of the, the word discontent this week and I'm like, okay, because I've I've been at both places. I've been discontent and it's definitely not been holy or healthy. And then I've been discontent where it is holy and healthy, where I just feel like, man, God is allowing me to partake in this. Hold on to your holy and healthy discontent and make sure it's both holy and healthy because discontent alone, if not holy and healthy can easily lead to bitterness, to anger, to frustration, to fruit that is just rather incompatible with a Christian, right? The the Bible tells us the fruit of the spirit is what love, joy, and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, right? Am I missing one? (laughs) I think I might've missed one, but you know, like if you think about bitterness or anger or frustration, those are, those are rather incompatible, Fruit. But if you hold on to holy and healthy discontent, like we see here in the text, these people are not willing to settle to look at their city in ruins for another hundred years. They want to be a part of this, they want to see it restored. And these people would not settle. And they heeded the call of Nehemiah to have holy and healthy discontent over the state of their city. They were driven to partake in the work and they had comfort in faith, knowing that. God was the one doing the extraordinary listing in this thing. Yeah, they were ordinary people, but he is an extraordinary God. They had faith, not in their own ability, but in a great God who could accomplish great things through simply faithful, willing, ordinary people. And their current state bothered them. So they were willing to partake in the work. So I wanna ask us, like when you look around at your current state, when you look around the current state of Christianity in Iceland, Christianity in the West, when you look at the current state of the world, are you content? Are you okay with all this? Are you okay with just another year of dealing with this in your life and never really progressing or doing what you always did and hoping that something is going to change and yet what does it mean? what is that quote, definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. Are we doing that? Or are we, do we have a problem with where we're at? Do I have a problem with the fact that I live in a country where there are so few people trying to reach Icelanders with the good news of Jesus and hundreds are going to their graves every year And I'm asking myself, how many people are trying to reach them with Jesus? Are we okay with that? Or or not even just that, not just thinking about the grave. Are we okay with a country mostly filled with a bunch of people who really don't know what Jesus said or taught or who he is? They've either rejected a faith that they don't know or they've accepted a faith that's not simply Christianity. It's not what Jesus asked of us. It's not what he taught. It's about, I don't know, like... Church services? Are we happy? Are we content? Or are we discontent? And if we are discontent, are we frustratingly discontent or holy and healthily discontent that drives us to seek God and say, God, would you change me? Change me, change this nation, change us, work in me, work through us, help us. Because we need your help. And remember, why? You do what you do, because it's not about what you do. It's also about why you do what you do. I'm not here to say, man, we got to go out. We got to do more. And you might walk out of here today thinking that I'm calling you sort of to a dreadful mission of moralistic deism or something like that, or God forbid. And you may walk out of here today and like, I think Gunnar just got a little... Legalistic today, telling us to do a bunch of stuff, but we're so by grace. So why? You know, like that's not the idea that you want to, I want to want you to walk out of here today with. I'm not calling you to do more so that God will finally be happy with you. I'm not, I'm not telling you that to, I I want you to realize, man, what justifies you, what makes you so that you stand innocent before God one day when you face him after your final breath is not how much you do, but rather how much Christ has done. Right? And so I always wanna hammer the fact that this faith is not about how awesome we are, but rather that we are in agreement that we are sinners in need of a savior and praise God, we have Jesus. And that is what saves you. So I'm not calling you to go, man, we need to do more so that God will be happy with us. No, he has saved us. He has made us his own, but I rather want you to think of this amazing love, this amazing grace and say, man, I want to serve him. I want to serve him. And then you're like, I, I want to serve this Lord who stooped down for me, who came to me. And, I, and to realize that he loves you, that he's actually out for your good. For the longest time, I just thought, you know, God is just like sky daddy who just hates me and wants to, wants to tell me a bunch of rules and I don't know why. Why can't I eat bacon? You know, like, or, you know, like I, I must have wondered that. Like, did the Old Testament people even ask why not show clothing together and all this type of stuff? I thought that's how God acted. And then I realized, man, when you look at the cross, you realize he is for you. He loves you. And so when he calls us to do, it's not sort of like, all right, get your act together. No, it's like, this, this is a blessing. And notice that if you go back to Genesis, you'll see the curse of the fall was not that Adam had to work. It's that now work was hard. Working was not a part of the fall, right? We, we have a blessing in that. You no longer have to have theoretical knowledge of God. Like how many have heard us say that God, the title of Jehovah Jireh, right? Anybody know what that means? Jehovah Jireh, God, our provider. And I hope that we can, can not only know God is our provider up here, but rather when we start doing to experience how he provides, how he provides the words when you don't have them, when the wisdom, when you don't have them, the strength, when you don't have it, how he, how he provides and blesses. If you just take a step of faith and how he uses that, our children, I'm getting more and more convinced of this. They need more than simple head knowledge. They need to see the transformative power of God in and through our, our lives. And I, don't, don't get me wrong. I believe the intellect is a good and God-given thing. I think it was John Calvin that put it this way. uh, Faith without reason is like a sword in the hand of the lunatic, right? If you have a bunch of faith and zeal, but you you have no grounding in why you believe what you believe, that's a dangerous thing. But also it is a dangerous thing to know a bunch of why and what you believe, but never to do it, right? Listen, I'm not against head knowledge. I think God gave us a head on our shoulders for a reason. It's not just to rest our glasses on and and put our hats on. It's it's to think through and, and glorify God with our thinking. But don't forget that in all of scripture, the theme simply seems to be that it's not about theoretical intellectual knowledge of who God is if you don't know him. It's about, man, that doesn't transfer into love, into obedience to God. Then all of our intellectual knowledge is not, praiseworthy, it's an indictment. It's an indictment of the fact that I know I should do. I know I want to do. I know God is good and he's calling me to do this because he loves me. And that becomes an indictment rather than a blessing. Like you think through all of scripture, it's all about not only hearing what God says, but responds to it. Like Acts chapter two, verse 42 says this, they gave themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, many want the end result of what happened in the early church, but they don't want how they got there. It says they gave themselves, notice, they, it says that, it doesn't say they gained knowledge of the apostles' teaching. Of course, you, that that is a good thing. Right? If you're going to give yourself to living out the apostles' teaching, you first need to know what it is. But more than likely, all these people, There are 3,000 people in that passage that just came to faith. No one has a Gideon Bible at this time. They don't have personal Bibles to go and do a Bible study on their own that evening or whatever. No, they hear the apostles teach and then each day is to them a blank canvas of, okay, I heard this, now I'm going to do. And don't make this serious mistake. They're thinking a head full of information is spiritual maturity if it does not lead to action. Like, think about this. If there was a woman who would say, man, you were you were part of a wedding and she was coming up to the altar and all of a sudden, before we go any further, she would say, I just want to say that I am a, a woman who, I have a room in my parents' house that I don't need to pay for or take responsibility for. Um, I have all the free time in, in the world to do whatever I want to do and I, I don't want to take on any kind of responsibility or some burden I'll marry this guy, but I don't want to give up the comfort that I have. Right, would you think that's a, a normal way to enter a marriage? How many of you think that's, that's going to be a great, healthy marriage? That's going to just blossom into a garden and going to be a beauty to us all? Of course not. We, we would realize like that's not how you enter a marriage. So you don't enter a marriage thinking, I'm not willing to sacrifice any, anything for this. Yeah, I want the title but I'm not willing to like take on responsibility or do anything really to change. And yet that's the attitude what we when we have, when we come to Jesus so often, is it not? Jesus, I want to come to you. I want the fruit of what happens when you do your thing, but I don't want to change. I don't want to sacrifice. But realize this, anything of value is worth sacrificing for, is it not? But how much of your resources would you give up to serve God. We'll find that later in Nehemiah, these people are giving up a lot. We'll find out in our baptism today, there are people all over the world giving up a lot, risking a lot to share Jesus. Let me challenge you with this. Think through how much time do I have in the week to reserve, to serve God? And how much time can I actually dedicate to God? Is it five hours a week? Is it 10 hours a week, 15, 20, 40? Maybe you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Five, perhaps. One, perhaps. I'm like, really? Uh, How fast did you binge watch that uh, Netflix series? (laughs) (laughs) No condemnation here. I've been there. (laughs) But the point is this. If you don't make time and fight for what's most important, other things are going to fill up your time. And you're just going to fall into the trap of living for what you see in front of you right now. Think through, all right, can I give 10 hours a week? Can I give 10, 20 hours a week to serve God in some way? Then take half of that time and just focus that on you growing in your faith. Take half of that time. If you're going to do 10 hours, say five hours a week, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to walk and I'm going to talk with God. And then five hours a week, I'm going to do something in light of who he is and what he said. Right? That could be here on Sundays. It can be, man, I'm going to just surprisingly love people. I'm going to serve people. I'm going to go to the elderly homes. I'm going to do X, Y, and C. There's so many things that could be done, but how much are we intentionally saying, man, God, I want to be used by you. And that remains the prayer. God, I want to be used by you. <laughs> but we never think, man, how much time can I actually dedicate your Man, God, use me in this way. All right. And then lastly, I want to just undermine this, the community that we see here. This reminds me, like well, when we see all these people, one of, there are two things that strike me. They're, they're working as one team and yet they are working at separate places in the wall, right? So they are one team and sometimes they're separated by what seems like hundreds of kilometers working on different sides of the wall, yet all working to the common goal. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12 when Paul the apostle says the church is like a body with different organs, right? And if we lose one part, the whole body starts to suffer. And, and I, I love this quote. I, there's a quote that I read this week said, can you be a Christian and not belong to a church? Sure. You know, just like you can be a wife who is away from her husband for a little while. Right. But what if that separation gets longer and longer and longer? Eventually the marriage is going to start to suffer. Right. And the scriptures say that the, the church is the body, the, the bride of Christ. And, and we're married to him and we can do a lot of things together. But only if we do what they did, which is to realize, man, this is all about God. It's not about us. It's not about our ability. It's not about our strength. It's not about what we can accomplish. This is about him. And there's too often when the church doesn't do anything at all because we're too concerned about, well, who gets the glory for this? Who gets to post this on social media and say, look at what, look at what I did? And what if we just said, man, we're going to do what they did. It's all going to be for the glory of God. And just like the wall, some built by their own homes. They were building together, even though we're many kilometers apart. So I want to end with this. You're not too insignificant. You're not too ill-equipped for this work. God will equip you as you will say, God, I will go where you call me to go. The question is this, will you work and labor alongside of us, alongside of the faith family here? In Iceland, like in our church, even in our small church, we have business people and baristas. Like we have, we have lawyers and laborers. We have university students and nurses and scientists, and store clerks and engineers and hotel workers. And yet, I hope that we have really one thing in common, which is, man, we are, we are working in the harvest of God here in Iceland, and we are working for Jesus. And if you think that you are like the nobles. You are too above this work, too dignified for this work and not willing to stoop down for your Lord. Let me remind you, your Lord stooped down for you. He stooped down from glory to meet us in the mud. He stooped down to be washed and washing his disciples' feet. He stooped down to be tortured, humiliated and killed on a cross to end our debt, to bury our shame. If your chiefest concern is comfort and dignity or respect from people, let me humbly ask you, are you really willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who was mocked by the people, tortured, humiliated by the people, who happens to be Lord of all? And every Sunday we celebrate this in the communion. We remember he stooped down for us And as Christians, we are not here to gain intellectual knowledge. We are here to live in light of who Jesus is. And we want to reflect him by what we say, by what we do, by what we think. So I want to pray for us as, as we just remember, we are ordinary people, but God can use ordinary people.
0: You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kyrka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with The Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavogur, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message